This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is www.gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cabanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. As you're sitting down, if you would open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20. And uh, we're in the middle of a series on uh, the Ten Commandments, and today we're on the Third Commandment. So if you're new here and you haven't been around, you haven't missed a whole lot, we're still pretty early in the, uh, in the series. I want to let you know uh, one thing that's a little bit different about today. <coughs> Excuse me, I had a normal week to prepare this sermon, and the first two commandments I did not have, I had, I had abnormal weeks, and so I was unable to do this. But this week, since I had time... Uh, prepared a, fa- a couple of family devotions for you on the third commandment. So uh, we've encouraged everybody to memorize the commandments, and so this is a way to help you do that. But they're very simple, I think. Um, I'll road test these with you this week, and they're really meant to be simple. So in case you don't do any kind of family devotion, this is a great time to get started because I've get, it's just a total cheat sheet. Here's devotion one, here's devotion two. You could literally read off it, and that'd be better than doing nothing, right? I mean, the Lord will, the Lord will honor that effort, I believe. And I think it's in such a way that it would work with a four-year-old all the way up to, like I've got a couple college-age kids, so all the way up, I think the whole range uh, it'll work for, and you can let me know next week if that's true or not, but that's the intent. So on your way out, uh, they'll have these, one per family you can grab, dads grab one, or if you're a single mom, or uh, maybe you're a mom with a, uh, a husband who's not a Christian, and so you're leading spiritually on these kinds of things, then you grab one as well. So one per, one per family on the way out, and this is not a promise, but I'm going to try uh, to do one of these for each week, the rest of the commandments, so we can study them, apply them, pray together, and uh, learn them. So just want to let you know that. You can get it on the way out. Okay, let's uh, pray, and then we will uh, study this command. Lord, we thank you today that you have gloriously set us free, that just as the children of Israel had been released from their slavery to come to you and to be given this law to obey, so you freed us from sin by the blood of Jesus, and you have freed us to obey you by walking in the truth of your word as well. And so we pray that we would do that today. We pray that you would bring conviction where necessary. Uh, We pray that you would encourage us to see the Savior afresh today and that we would respond to you, Lord, in a way that would glorify you. Lord, please enable us to do so. Lord, I pray that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit and empower me to proclaim truth to the wonderful people gathered here today and give us all ears to hear and hearts to apply. Most of all, elevate our understanding of Jesus Christ as we gather here today, and may we respond with hearts that worship your name as we talk about your name today. Amen. Okay, Exodus 20. We'll go ahead and read the the preamble of the Ten Commandments, the First and Second Commandment, and then the Third, which is what we're studying today. Verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord 
I, the Lord your God, am jealous, God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now the third command for today. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. We've been talking about each of the commandments and even learning them. And I just recommend it, even if you learn the commandment itself, that's tremendous. Feel free not to to, to have to memorize all the commentary. So this one, if you just were to memorize the basic command, you can memorize, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And, or you can memorize the whole thing if you would like. But just a little bit at a time, let's try to, try to learn them. There is a series of books out. You'd find them in your humor section. Of, uh, of a bookstore, and they are a compilation of letters. This guy has written fictitious letters, made up a character, and he has written letters to various companies making unusual requests of them as a joke, a prank. I, I don't recommend, I'm about to read one, but I don't recommend prank letters, but it serves a point today. Uh, so he writes prank letters, and then he gets a return response from the corporation he's written to, and then he publishes his letter and the corporation's letter, and binds them in a book and charges $19.99 or whatever it is. So the guy's got a great deal. And uh, so this is what he's done. He calls himself Ted L. Nancy. And uh, he wrote the following letter with the following response to the Coca-Cola company. Dear Coca-Cola, I have a beverage called Kyat Doke. Will it interfere with your beverage, Diet Coke? The taste is not similar at all. Mine tastes like Pepsi. I will sell my Kyat Doke to mostly construction workers who love it. One guy said, this sure doesn't taste like Coca-Cola. Let me know so I can continue to sell my soda. Thanks. By the way, do you use caramel in your soda? Just checking. Thanks. Sincerely, Ted L. Nancy. He receives a response written from their attorney of trademark, their trademark counsel on official letterhead with, with reference numbers. It looks like a legal document. This is how they responded to his letter about Kyat Doak. Mr. Nancy, thank you for your letter on October 25th inquiring whether you may continue using the trademark Kyat Doak in association with a beverage. As the owner of a federal registration for the famous trademark Diet Coke, we cannot consent to your use of Kyat Doke in association with a beverage. We believe Kyat Doke is confusingly similar to our trademark Diet Coke and are concerned that an appreciable number of consumers will believe that the Coca-Cola company endorses your product. As a result, we must insist that you immediately take action to discontinue the use of Kyat Doke. If you are willing to immediately cease and desist using Kyat Doke and agree not to use any product name or trademarks of the Coca-Cola company in association with beverages in the future, please sign the spaces provided and return this letter to me. If you would like to discuss this, I may be reached at the numbers below. If we have not received this sign agreement within 15 days of the date of this letter, we will assume you do not agree to these terms. Sincerely, Nancy Stevens, trademark counsel. He responds to Miss Stevens 
on the sham that he has. <laughs> she didn't take it lightly at all. He responds, Dear Miss Stevens, I have decided that I will not sell my Kyat Doke beverage anymore. The product is discontinued. I am taking my $700 out of the bank and my 11 cans of Kyat Doke that are left and bringing them home. They're in my room now. I now, <laughs> I now realize it was a poorly thought out idea. It was stupid. I mean, if you went to 7-Eleven and saw in the cooler Dr. Pepper, Orange Crush, Wink, and Kyat Doke, would you choose Kyat Doke? I don't think so. The idea was bad. Who was I to think that someone would choose Kyat Doke? I am embarrassed over what I now consider to be a terrible idea. So let this letter stand as my admission that I have ceased and desisted. There will be no more Kyat Doke on the market. I'm sorry I bothered you. I'm sorry I wasted your time. And please look for my new beverage. Pyatt Depsy. With the familiar slogan, it tastes nothing like Coke, it will be in cooler soon. Pyatt Depsy is a thirst-quenching drink, which I believe does not taste like your drink. Enjoy it. Also, what about caramel in your soda? Are you using a lot of it? Thanks. Respectfully, Ted L. Nancy. Coke didn't think he was being very funny. The Coca-Cola company was concerned that this guy was going to use their name in an unauthorized fashion to represent his product in a way that would be associated with them. And so their trademark counsel fired off a letter immediately saying, cease and desist. You do not have permission to use a name that represents our name or we'll see you in court. In the scope of eternity... The Coca-Cola company is selling sugar water. And if they take the sales of sugar water that seriously, then how much more does God take the use and the unauthorized misuse of his name seriously? In fact, one commentator wrote this, which helped me connect these two together. He said, one way for a modern American to begin to understand the third commandment is to treat God's name as a trademarked property. God has graciously licensed the use of his name to anyone who will use it according to his written instructions. It needs to be understood, however, that God's name has not been released into the public domain. God retains legal control over his name and threatens serious penalties against the unauthorized misuse of this supremely valuable property. All trademark violations will be prosecuted to the full limits of the law. The prosecutor, judge, jury, and enforcer is God. In the third commandment, God is forbidding the unauthorized misuse of his name. As a matter of fact, I read from the ESV, but if you're reading from the NIV, the NIV translates this command, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Now, what is so serious about how we use the name of God? Well, What's so serious about it is that in the Bible, names are significant. Uh, Names, especially the names of God, 
are treated with profound significance because when God reveals his name in the scripture, he is revealing something about himself. When God gives a name to himself and reveals that to us, he is revealing something about his nature, something about his character, something about his works. In other words, names for God in the Bible are not identifications. They are identities. They are, they are revelatory of who he is. They are not labels or merely labels by which we address him. And so that's how, uh, the, that, that's the difference in how God's name and oftentimes other human names in the Bible are understood versus how we might use our names today. There's a difference. We've been talking about in the first two messages, we looked at we referred back to the preamble in verse 2 of this passage where he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. We talked about how God brought deliverance and freedom and then calls his people to express their freedom by obeying this law which will please him and will reflect his nature and character in the world and how we're called to do the same. We are freed by the gospel and that we're freed so that we can obey the word of God like these Ten Commandments and honor him And so we're in very much a similar position, though we've not been freed from physical slavery. We've been freed from the power of sin. But we talked about the God who delivered in this passage refers to himself as, I am the Lord your God, and the Lord is in all caps. Whenever you see the Lord in all caps in the Bible, it is his name which he gave to Moses. He revealed in Exodus 3. He calls uh, Moses to go to Pharaoh, and Moses says, well, who should I say sent me? And God says gives his name Yahweh. He says, tell them, I am sent you. It is the verb for being in Hebrew. So tell them the God who is. Tell them, I am. Tell them the self-existent one. Um, Tell them the God who is present. That is my name. I am. And so what he's revealing in that is that he is self-existent. He exists in and of himself. He's not created. He's independent. So that's not just a label for God, that's a revelation of the nature of God given as he gave his name. And we see this throughout the Old Testament. He will take the name Yahweh, or sometimes the same name is transliterated Jehovah, but he'll take that same name for being and he will attach it uh, with something else. So, for instance, in the Old Testament, he reveals himself as Yahweh Yireh. That is, the Lord provides. So he's revealing himself as God who does something. God who provides. That's a name for God in the Old Testament. Or the name Yahweh Rophe, which is the Lord heals. So there he's revealing God is a God who heals people. And his name is not just a label, it's revelatory of what he does, who he is. He's called Ancient of Days, which reflects God's eternal nature, that God is, has, is uncreated. He is, he's existed an immeasurable number of days and will exist. He, he can't count, you, can't, you cannot count his days for he is an eternal being. Or how about in the New Testament where God reveals himself as Abba? And he's, he, he gives that not as merely a name. Abba is a, uh, a, an affectionate name for father. And, and so he's revealing, I am a father to you. Now that's meaningful. That's not just a label. He's communicating how he relates with his children. 
So you see, his name is to be treated carefully, reverently, respectfully. Why? Because his name cannot be separated from his character and his works. When you use one of the names of God, you are speaking of who he is and what he does. It's far more significant than the name Coca-Cola, which describes a beverage. Do you understand? It's far more significant um, than that because of what it reveals. So if that's what the name means in this verse, you shall, ha- you shall not take the name. That's all I've talked about so far as the name of the Lord your God. There it is. He uses the word Yahweh your God there. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. So what is forbidden here? Well, what is forbidden in this command? We'll look at what's forbidden, and then we'll look at what's implicitly um, required of us in this command as well, and we'll look at how Christ fulfills this command. So we'll do all of that. But let's start with what is forbidden. And I'm going to give a lot of examples today. This is going to be maybe the most heavy application-oriented message in all the Ten Commandments. I'm not sure uh, because we've only done two of them. But uh, this may be the most application-oriented. We'll see because I'm about to transition to a lot of application as we try to understand what this is. But he says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You may not use God's name in vain. Vain means in this situation, it means using God's name in an empty way, in a meaningless way. It could be in an unreal or insincere way, in a frivolous way. Um, it's, It's using God's name in a way that doesn't reflect a sobriety about who he is, about who are we, uh, of whom we are speaking. And uh, so that, that's what it means. Now, the NIV translates this to misuse, and I think what they're trying to get at there is the reality is that this term is sort of broad and can cover a broad number of misuses of his name. And so what we're going to do is we're going to start with a very technical misuse of his name, and then we're going to broaden out to the broadest kind of misuse of his name that we can think of. But in terms of a technical misuse of his name, this phrase, take the name of the Lord, is technical language for taking an oath. To take the name of God is used um, to take an oath. So the first misuse of God's name would be to uh, engage in false oaths. False oaths. People historically have taken oaths in the name of their gods. And what they're doing by that is they're making a promise and they're bringing in the name of a God and they're saying, this God who knows, knows what I'm doing, and this God who knows has power to get me um, and make me pay if I don't do what I'm saying I'm going to do. And that's not just a pagan practice, that's in the Bible. People take oaths in the Bible this way. So, for instance, in 2 Samuel 3, we read, David took an oath saying, may God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if I taste bread or anything else before the sun sets. Took an oath, made a promise, may God deal with me, be it ever so severely. What's he doing? Well, he's taking an oath and he's using God's name with the oath. Now, the The commandment did not say don't use God's name. It said do not misuse God's name. It didn't say don't use God's name. It said don't use God's name in vain. And so he takes an oath there and he invites God to, in essence, judge him and perhaps punish him if he doesn't follow through on what he's saying he's going to do. May God deal with me, be it ever so severely. So he is elevating the importance of this oath by 
calling on the name of the Lord in that situation. Paul does something similar in uh, 1 Corinthians 1.23. This is what Paul says. I call God as my witness that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Okay? He's making a statement. I wanted to spare you, and that's why I didn't come back to Corinth. And I'm not just saying that. God is my witness that that's the case. So he's saying to the Corinthians there that here's, here's what will verify what I'm saying. Now, he's writing Scripture. This is serious. He's writing Scripture here when he says that. Um, he wants to verify the veracity of the words he's spoken, so he calls on God who knows the truth. So what is forbidden in this command would be to take an oath of this sort um, in God's name and then to lie or to fail to fulfill the promise that we are making. That would be a misuse. See, if we make an oath and we invite the name of God along with it and we don't fulfill the content of that oath, then what we're actually doing at that point is we're misrepresenting God. We're misusing His name. Because God is always true and can never lie, yet we're lying. God will always fulfill His purposes and fulfill His promises, yet we're making a promise we won't fulfill. So that would be a false oath. Well, are we permitted to take oaths now? We are. I just read two passages of Scripture we are. But I would say we should do so very, very rarely because of what's at stake by making a false oath. I can think of two instances, and I'm sure there's more, but I can think of two instances where an oath is appropriate in God's name. False oath is never appropriate. But one would be in a court of law where you are, what do we say, sworn in. So there is a swearing at that point. We're swearing to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God. What that phrase means is that I am telling the truth as I stand to give testimony in this matter. And it is absolutely the truth. God is my witness, and we're attaching our name to God there. So can we take that oath? I think so, but you better not lie when you sit in the witness stand if you take that oath. You better really fulfill that oath. Another place that we could take an oath, I think, or a vow would be in a wedding. So sometimes in, the, uh, in a wedding, not usually during the exchange of vows, but sometimes God's name is brought into a wedding. I can think of like sometimes there's a section of a wedding called a promise um, where you're making a promise apart from the actual vows. Or sometimes this happens in the exchange of rings. And maybe during the exchange of rings, something along these lines is communicated. You know, with this ring, um, I pledge my undying loyalty or I pledge my covenant love in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You'll see that in a wedding. I I think that's appropriate, that we're making a solemn vow before all these people gathered here, but we're also doing it as Christians before God. And we're saying, this is a vow I'm making in God's name. Our lives are being joined together. Now, as long as we're doing that with obviously appropriate intent, that's, that's not inappropriate. But I think that should be very rare that we use this because what we don't want to do is take oaths flippantly. We don't want to take oaths flippantly because if we do, we're misusing God's name, we're attaching his name to casual speech in that way. So the two oaths I just gave you I think are okay, but we don't want to swear, for instance, Or say, I swear to God over smaller things. Now, I didn't just swear. 
take a deep breath. I'm going to do this a number of times in this message. For illustrative purposes, I'm going to need to use some phrases to describe what I mean here, and I'll try to be careful and not use any more than is necessary. But uh, as my friend Bob Hughes over here says, let's all put on our big boy pants. Uh, He didn't just swear in church, okay? This is illustrative. Got our big boy pants on. Okay, here we go. So, if your employer says, did you turn in the report? And you say, yes, I've turned in the report. And your employer says, we can't find the report. And you say, really, I turned it in. He says, I don't think you turned it in because it's not there. And you say, I swear to God that I turned it in. You are involving God in an oath, in a, in a sober way, about something that's very trivial, a report at work. A report at work doesn't, doesn't necessitate and involve oaths in the name of God. That could be a flippant oath or even the euphemism, I swear. You know, people say that all the time where they swear to God or about this, that, or the other. Okay, that is, that is an inappropriate use of the Lord's name. That is a flippant use of the Lord's name. To draw God's name into everyday affairs of life to prove the veracity of what I'm saying. That's why the Bible says, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Why? Because we're to be people of such integrity that all we need to do is say yes, and that's the truth. All we need to do is say no, and that's the truth. We don't need to involve the God of the universe, the holy God of the universe that has given his name as a revelation of his character and his works to prove that we turned in our report. Or whatever, or, or much less thing, much you know, less important things. I think when we talk about misusing the name of the Lord or using it in vain, we, we also are referring to, the second point would be just sort of a flippant use. So one would be false oaths, and I'm kind of transitioning here from flippant oaths, to just flippant use. You know, in our culture, we don't take a lot of oaths. I guess from what I've read, that was common, very common in biblical times. I read that in John Calvin's day, people took oaths in God's name all the time for small stuff, and except for the usage that I just mentioned on the report, we we probably don't do that a ton in our culture. But one thing we do is use God's name in a light, empty, even a joking way. And I think the spirit of this command is don't use God's name in a way that doesn't reflect a deep awareness of who he is. Don't use God's name in a way that doesn't express a deep reverence for who he is. Because his name reflects who he is. And his name is inextricably linked with his character and works. And so it is supposed to be spoken of with sober, reverent, even worshipful tone. Uh, not tone, but usage. Not flippantly. But we do that. We use God's name in an empty way. And you know what? It's not just those who would use God's name in a hateful way, but even those who profess Christ as Savior can still very flippantly, carelessly. To be careless is not to be malicious. But yet to be careless, I think, breaks what's at, what's at stake in this command, which is to use God's name in a thoughtless, inappropriate way. So, for instance, um, if you're driving down the road, car pulls out in front of you, you slam on your brakes, and you start skidding, to yell out, oh my God, and the, when it looks like you're going to crash and lose your life and you're calling on God for help, that's appropriate. That's a prayer. 
In your moment of need, you're saying, God, save me, if that's what you mean. If you're just using it as, a, as an expletive, it would be inappropriate. But if you're crying out, God, help me. Oh, my God, rescue me. That's worship. That's prayer. That's crying out in desperation. If you walk around the corner and one of your kids says, boo, and you're scared, and as an, ex, as an expletive, you yell out, oh, my God, in, in fear like that or something, that's a casual use of God's name. That, that's not using God's name where you're really crying out for help. That's just using it in a loose or a casual way. To use it, God's name in anger. You know, to, with your teeth gritted, yell, my God. When you're not referring to God, but you're just using this loosely as, a, as an expression of anger. That, that, that's using God's name in an empty way. We're not meaning what we're communicating. It's vain. Vain, means, vain can mean empty or futile. Vain means futile. Like, for instance, if I were to say, you know, um, they, you know my friend tried to convince me to be a vegetarian, but all of his arguments were in vain. What does that mean? It means I ordered another steak, I said no thank you, and what he did was meaning and empty and futile and fruitless. So we don't use God's name in an empty and meaningless way. That's vain. You see what I'm saying? So not to yell, oh my God, in surprise. Or maybe we don't say that. We just text OMG. So just, you know, again, those are letters. I'm not going to talk about euphemisms in this message. I got asked about that at the first service. I'm not going to. But that's not really a euphemism so much. That's a shorthand for the same phrase. It's what it is. So somebody says something, and we toss out the name of God in a casual way. Or taking the name of Jesus, just saying, you know, Jesus when something happens, and we're not really talking to Jesus or in a meaningful way about Jesus. Or a phrase like, Lord, have mercy. Now, if we're praying for someone here at the end of the meeting and they're sick and we're saying, Lord, have mercy and heal this person, totally appropriate. If a guy hits a ball and it looks like it's going to go out of the park and you say, Lord, have mercy as it's going over the fence, that's not an appropriate use of the name of the Lord. That, that's a baseball. We're not crying out for the mercy. of The mercy of God is precious. That's trivial. And so there's a difference. It's not the phrase that's wrong. It's how is it used and in what context. We can be flippant and talk about God, talk about His name, talk about His works in a, in a humorous way. Now, I'm using some humor this morning or, uh, a little, or trying to at various points, but none of it is about God. That's inappropriate. Um, I was... I remember one time I was doing the announcements in a Sunday morning worship service, which would be a very bad place to break the third commandment, I would say. And uh, this is uh, in, in Southern California. I was doing the announcements. And I was trying to make a comment that was honoring to someone in the church and saying, this guy's amazing for serving. I don't remember the situation. But I used this phrase to describe this guy who was like Superman by serving everywhere in the church. I said, this guy walks on water. Now, if you look at the instance, we all know who that refers to, right? And I wasn't saying he's Christ-like. That's not what I was saying. I was saying he's amazing. And I wasn't trying to defame Jesus. I wasn't intentionally saying, what's a way that I could demean the work of God? I was being flippant and trying to be sort of, sort of humorous by saying, well, this guy is miraculous. So how does he do it all? And use a phrase like that. 
problem with that is God's works are tied to his name. And what's happening when Jesus walks on water? If you go back and look at that, what's happening is he's coming to rescue his people, but he is, the guys in the boat, but he is demonstrating to them that in the middle of the storm, he's coming, then he's going to calm the storm. He is Lord over the elements. That's an illus- a living illustration, a work of God to demonstrate that Jesus is the same one as the Creator God who rules over all the elements. That is a holy moment. They are in awe. They are shocked. They say when they see that, this must really be God. They're amazed by it. They're not cracking a joke over it. So, well, Craig, were you trying to be malicious? Were you trying to blaspheme? Absolutely not. But I was being familiar and loose with something that is holy. I'm all for humor. I joke around all the time. But we just need to be careful that we're not using the name or the works of God in a humorous way. We can be flippant in the way we claim God's authority over our plans. We can bring the name of God and attach the name of God to our plans. A little bit like the opening illustration. This guy didn't really have a drink, but he says he's got his own drink, and he wants to make it very similar so that he could sort of associate it with this great name. And we can do that. We can have our own little plan here and try to associate God with it. I remember one time having a conversation with a guy, and this is the gist of the conversation. We talked for a while, but he was just saying things like this. Well, you know, God told me this, and so uh, I said, yeah, thank you, Lord, and did that. And then, then God said this, and then God told me to do that, and then God called me to do that, and then God said this to me. And to hear him talk, he interacted with God as plainly as I'm speaking to you right here, just that casually. The, the primary place that God speaks to us is through the Scripture. Now, if he was quoting Scripture, that would have been fine. If he said, God spoke to me, and this is the verse where he revealed himself to me, okay, we can look at that. But he was saying that, that God's just speaking to me left and right. And so the normal way that we interact with God is through Scripture and through making decisions and responding based on wisdom gleaned from Scripture. Now, God does lead. God does give impressions. I believe that. But even there, we should be, you know, a dose of humility is helpful. It seems to me that God's leading me in this direction. Because if it's just thus saith the Lord, how can anybody serve you and ask a question about that one? Who wants to question God? So let's leave the thus saith the Lord. We don't need to endorse and authorize our plan with that. Let's be humble. Let's be careful that it's only in a situation where God really is bringing some direction and impression, something apart from Scripture. Otherwise, I think we are misusing God's name because we are taking the holy God of the universe and endorsing our own ways with that. I mean, how many times has there been unauthorized use of God's name to endorse human desires or human plans? In some circles, that happens very frequently. And it's not a mark of spirituality. It can sound like very spiritual. It can be the mark of someone who's deluded. It can be the mark of someone who's flippant. It can also be the mark of someone who wants to do what they want to do and is asking God to bless it. Again, God does speak. God does direct. God does give impressions. Absolutely. But let's be careful how we speak about that. And let's be careful that we're not using God at all. 
be very, very careful about that one. Flippancy. So we can take false oaths. There can be flippancy. I think we can also misuse God's name. We can take it in vain through irreverence. Irreverence. This is what most of us think of when we hear of this. We don't think of false oaths. Most of us think of cursing. And sort of irreverence is what we would call cursing. Um, God's name is holy. And if we use God's name in a common manner, that means to profane the name of God. We often have a poor definition of profanity. We have a list of Christian cuss words. I'll not run through them, but we have a list of cuss words that we say, and we just sort of say these are the lists of not what, you, what you're not supposed to say. We just call that profanity. But really, profanity in the most literal sense is to speak in a profane way. And what is to speak in a profane way? It's to take something holy and speak of it in a common way. It's to take something of God and speak of God in a common way. So all the stuff I've been talking about is really being profane. That's really profanity uh, in a very real way. But when we use the name of God and speak of something holy in a profane way, in an angry way, in a careless way, that is profanity with a capital Okay, for illustrative purposes. So, for instance, when someone calls upon God to damn a person or damn a thing, we're speaking of something frighteningly holy. And we're doing so in a casual way. There is nothing imaginable that is that is as grievous, that is as sober as the thought of someone experiencing eternal damnation. There is no subject that you could identify that is more serious than an individual paying for their sins by enduring the wrath of God for God to damn them for their sins for eternity. There's nothing. I mean, if you can think of something more serious than that, I don't know what it would be. I can't even imagine. There is nothing more serious than that. And when we speak casually of the damnation of others, we are using God's name and we are taking a holy subject, his work, because damnation, condemnation, wrath, hell, that whole category, judgment, That's all a work of God. That's all the holy God of the universe justly as a righteous judge punishing sins. That's what's going on. And the Bible talks about it all over the place. So it's a very serious subject. And not, not only that, not only are we speaking profanely about a serious subject, but when we ourselves call upon God to bring damnation to a person or a thing, what we're doing there is we're inserting ourselves. No one has the prerogative to bring condemnation. No one has the prerogative to call upon God to bring judgment. God is a holy God, and He will justly punish sins. We do not have a place to insert ourselves and call upon God to bring damnation. That is a very serious thing. And that's why he says in the passage, if you look back at the verse, verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, 
For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. The Lord will not hold him guiltless. The person who does so is the person who misuses God's name will be guilty and will be held for their guilt. And so what's so ironic here is the person who is calling God to damn someone else is bringing damnation upon themselves. They're inviting the very judgment of God that they are prescribing to someone else. And, and similarly, similarly we, that's the reason that the word damn is inappropriate. It's short for damnation. That's why it ends in an N. Damnation is the full word. Damn is short. And so the reason we don't use that word is not because it made the list. See, sometimes you can say, well, it's on the bad word list, so we don't use it. No, the reason we don't use it, or should not use it, is because it is speaking profanity. It is speaking something holy of God in a casual way. And, of course, the word hell would be the same. The word hell is not a bad word. Jesus uses that word regularly. He always used it appropriately, but he used that word. So, as we're thinking about words, I mean, there's nothing sinful about the sound of that word. There's nothing sinful about consonant, vowel, two consonants, and when they're put together, they sound like this, and that sound, and those shapes of those letters to view, that's sinful. It's... This is not witchcraft. This is not superstition. This is like certain words. There's meaning to the word, and that's why we don't use it. Oftentimes, the cuss list, and we just don't say anything on the list, that's just like superstition sometimes. It's random. Sometimes it's ascribing law to something God didn't bring law to, and and in that case, it's legalistic. But here, when we speak of the name of the Lord... The holy God, he's called righteous judge. When we speak of him in his works in a casual way, in an inappropriate way, then we are profaning his name because it is his works as well, his work of judgment. One of the problems with using, obviously to use hell to describe a place of perdition, that's appropriate when we're teaching that. But to use hell as a statement when we're angry um, or something like that, some other use, like who cares, you know, to use it in that kind of a way, that's inappropriate. And one of the things that's wrong about that, and one of the fruits of speaking profanely, is that it desensitizes us to the reality. When you use profanity, you become desensitized to the reality of the truth behind the word. I was recently at a baseball game. And uh, so everybody's just kind of between innings, People are just sort of relaxing. And so it came on the music. You know, people are talking, and they're playing songs, and they played the song, Highway to Hell. Nothing wrong with the music. Arguably, the music's kind of memorable and catchy because I can feel my adrenaline. As soon as the music comes on, it's got that kind of a mesmerizing effect. But the words, there's, there's singing and people are eating peanuts and maybe tapping their foot and kind of enjoying the loud music as someone is singing about the pathway to eternally experiencing the holy wrath of God. As if that is celebratory. There's nothing more grievous than hell. 
And it just made me think. I wasn't thinking about it. I was desensitized. I was toe-tapping. And then all of a sudden, it just hit me. If God gave a vision for five seconds to all of us in the stands of the nature of enduring His holy judgment for our rebellion, if we could have seen that for five seconds, folks would have hit their knees in repentance. They would have screamed, turn off the music. The environment would have moved from light and celebratory and we're going to party now, and we're going to party forever, to woe is me. But that usage has a desensitizing effect on us, and so we don't want to speak about damnation. We don't want to speak about wrath. We don't want to speak about hell. We don't want to speak about God's judgment in light ways because it is real, it is certain, and we must preserve a sobriety and a reverence for those topics in our soul. Just a word about... Can I give another word about cuss words here for a second? Just using that terms. Um, We need to train our children the meaning of words um, in an age-appropriate manner. But please note that all cuss words are not created equal. They're just not. And I've been the dad that's... And I think we should consider language in making entertainment choices. I'd recommend not downloading the song that I just referred to, for instance, for the reasons I stated. But I've been the dad that's just looked, okay, how many cuss words are in it? And they're just just looking at them equal and seeing how many it is, and, and, and then making a decision about that. We need to be discerning because it's not all the same. There are categories of speech. There are categories of speech that break the third commandment. And that is, this is serious. And then there's categories of speech that are words that are used to, to, uh, def, uh, to uh, sort of defame or uh, speak in a common way about the precious gift of sexuality. So there's language that has to do with sex or the human body with, uh, with regard to our sexuality. And so there's certain language that sort of speaks in an inappropriate, it's called dirt, it could be called dirty words, words that, that uh, sort of defame something that's a gift from God. So that's serious. I want to be careful about those kind of words. And then there is a list of words that make the cuss word list that are just up there with all the words I've been saying. They could refer to human waste. Um, they could refer to potty talk. They could refer to, um, they could refer to a, a stupid person, comparing a person, for instance, uh, to a donkey and calling them. That's, if, you look, if you look that up, if you look up, actually, if you read the Ten Commandments in the King James Version, in the, in the Tenth Commandment, you are, in the ESV, you're forbidden from uh, coveting your neighbor's donkey. In the King James, I don't know if anybody has King James here, you're forbidden from coveting your neighbor's ass. That's what it says in, in, the, in there to refer to a donkey. So to refer to a person in that way is meaning that they are stupid or they are stubborn. So to call down damnation, to call God to damn a soul for eternity under His holy wrath To say that to someone and to call someone the A-word, meaning donkey, stubborn, stupid, 
That's cancer in a common cold. Now, this is unkind. It's not nice. We don't say it in our house to people. It's not nice, but it is not cursing something holy. I mean, to say our team's going to kick your team, your... And that's not nice. That's arrogant. We're not going dis- to say our church softball team kicked their- to another church softball team. We're not going to do that. That's just kind of vulgar and inappropriate and arrogant and proud and just not real tasteful. But that is not cursing God. Speaking of body waste in a foul way, I mean, that is immature that is vulgar, that is gross, there's reasons not to do that. But that's not the third commandment. Do you see what I'm saying? We need to be careful about what we're saying. And we need to be careful about why certain words are the way they are. Otherwise, we just legalistically get a whole lot of terms and say they're all just off limits. But why? What are you saying? What do they mean? What's the purpose? What's the fruit and the effect of speaking like that? You know, uh, becoming familiar and treating sexuality, something that's holy, in a gutter way, we don't want to do that. We want to be thankful for sex, not speaking filthy about it. We want to celebrate that gift of God. And the name and the person of God, we want to celebrate. I'm getting ahead of myself. But we want to celebrate that. We don't want to speak in a foul way. And vulgar terms, well, let's, let's set some household rules about some vulgar terms and not use them. Let's be appropriate. Let's serve others. Let's be careful. Let's be kind. But let's be discerning. Let's be discerning as well. Irreverence. Don't speak irreverently. Don't speak hypocritically. That would be the last one. Hypocritically. In the broadest sense, we started narrow. In the broadest sense, we misuse the name of the Lord when we identify ourselves with his name on Sunday, but not the rest of the week. In other words, we take his name as followers of Christ, but we don't live that way. So the Puritan Stephen Sharnock said, It's a sad thing to be Christians at the Lord's Supper, heathens in our shop, and devils in our closet. He's saying to be Christians when we're with everybody at church and take the name of Jesus, to be a heathen when we work in the marketplace, and to be a devil in our private life, that's not what's in view. Paul says it this way, Colossians 3, Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's what this command requires. We talked about what it doesn't permit. Here's what it requires. This command requires us to use God's name in an appropriate way. And an appropriate way is whatever we do, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God. See, we are to reverence the name of God, adore the name of God, honor the name of God, celebrate the name of God. We are saved by the name of God. We are saved by the name of Jesus. We are baptized into the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're called to proclaim God's name to the unbeliever. We're to pray for the sick in the name of Jesus. We're to sing in his name. We're to serve in his name. We're to love other people in his name. We gather in his name on Sunday morning as those who have been saved by him, those who've been delivered by him to sing his praise and celebrate and speak 
words of life about him, not to speak in profane ways, but to speak in holy ways, joyful ways, recounting the many works of God. That's why Psalm 29 says this, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. We are to celebrate the name of the Lord. And the good news is that while we have not done this with a perfect track record, Jesus has. Jesus never misused the name of God. He's fully God and fully man, and He lived a perfect life. He never spoke flippantly about God. He never spoke inappropriately, jokingly about God. He never uh, took a false oath. He never had one hypocritical act. And so Jesus lived perfectly so that His righteousness can be counted to us if we believe in Him and trust in Him. Not only that, but Jesus died for us. You see, we have all broken this command. And this command says, God says in this command, that the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Every one of us have done this. Now you say, hey, all those words you said in the sermon, I've never said those. Maybe you're better than me. Yeah, I've never uttered any of those words in my life. I'm innocent. Well, if there's ever been a time you called yourself a Christian and took the name of Christ as your own, and then went out and misrepresented Him with your words or your actions, you've misused His name. You have unauthorized use of His name. If you ever said, God told me when He didn't, and later you acknowledge, oh yeah, it probably wasn't the Lord. It probably was indigestion. I just thought I was hearing the Lord in that dream, but it was something else, right? If you've ever had that experience, you have. We have all been light You may not have made a direct joke mocking Jesus. Many have. But you have treated him lightly and his works lightly. And you have invited others to use that language in your hearing. Many times we have no choice. We have no saying. We can't do anything about it. Or we're reaching out to someone, and that may not be the very first topic we hit is their language. Right? We've got other things we're talking about. But, but there are times where you have willingly invited that kind of language to listen to it and you've not been affected by that. So we all are guilty. The good news is that Jesus, who is guiltless, pays the price for the guilty. Jesus dies on the cross and endures the judgment of every casual use of God's name, every mocking use of God's name, every uh, cursing use of God's name, every flippant use of judgment and hell and wrath, every expletive, every time we expressed His name in anger or in a callous way, Jesus died for that. See, when Isaiah saw the glory of God, the holiness of God, he said, I and my people, we are people, I'm among a people of unclean lips. He saw the holiness of God and he was aware of his sin. And maybe that's us today. We've just been too casual with with the one who is perfectly holy. And we say, we're people of unclean lips, and we're among a people of unclean lips. We must run to Christ today and receive forgiveness for our sins. And he does. He died in our place. Maybe you're here and not a Christian. You're someone who's cursed. You deserve hell like everyone here, and I'm not speaking flippantly, I'm speaking as soberly as I can. You deserve damnation. So do I. 
But Jesus died as a substitute and paid the price. So you can turn from your sin, turn to him, believe in him, and you can be forgiven. You can receive forgiveness. You can turn from that speech and turn to him and ask him to change your speech so that you begin to cherish, not degrade the name of Jesus. You begin to worship God by singing and praying his name rather than using his name as a profanity. Acts 4 says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. His name is glorious. His name is Savior. His name is Jesus. Jesus means... He will say, that's what the scripture says. You will name him Jesus, for he will save his people from his sins. The name of Jesus spoken, sung, prayed, meditated upon, celebrated, that is sweet. For it means he saves us from our sins. Christ means Messiah, the one who comes and, and is, is the ruler who frees us. Savior means one who rescues. The Savior, Jesus, has rescued us from our sin. See, this command doesn't just say, we can misunderstand, just avoid all the bad words. This, said, this commandment says, treat the person and work of God in a holy manner, and may that be reflected in your speech, and use your speech to worship and honor and evangelize and celebrate the name of Jesus. Use it in the right way, not in vanity, but for his glory. And that's how we're going to close here today. We're not going to close saying, oh, did I use any of the words? If you have, repent, turn to Jesus, receive forgiveness. But we're going to leave here today, If Tim, if you want to join me and whoever is joining you, if we're going to leave here today celebrating the name of Jesus. We're going to close with a song. That's what we're going to wrap up. We're going to fix our eyes on Christ, considering what he's done for us. And we're going to celebrate the name through which we are saved. Because his name means he saves. He did so through the cross and the resurrection, and he's ascended to the right hand of God today. We don't want to use his name carelessly, but we do want to use his name in an informed way to bring him glory. Stand together, and we'll close singing. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.